Well, good morning, everyone. It's snowing outside, yeah? Welcome Christmas. I find that just to be an uh, unnecessary freezing of water, personally, but um, that's just me, you know, that's just me. Hey, I'm glad you're here this morning. Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles with me to uh, Matthew chapter 2, the New Testament, Matthew chapter 2. And uh, as you've already been told, today we're starting this new series called Reclaiming Christmas. And you know, back in, uh, back in the year 1870, our federal government declared December 25th a national holiday on which Americans uh, get to take off work in order to celebrate the birth of Jesus. It was intended to be a, uh, a day of, uh, of religious and spiritual commemoration. But as most of us realize, over the last 146 years, Christmas uh, in this country has become very secularized and commercialized. As a culture, we use it to celebrate family and friends, which is nice and good. Uh, we exchange presents with one another, which is a lot of fun. Uh, we decorate, we entertain, we throw parties, we eat, we drink, and this season we'll pour an estimated $465 billion into our retail economy, once again demonstrating to the world that we are a privileged society. Research indicates that somewhere between 90 and 95% of Americans will observe the holiday in some way, shape, or form. Yet in the midst of all the celebration, Jesus, um, for whom the holiday was originally established, can and does get overlooked. So with that in mind, our hope over the next few weeks of December is to try and reclaim Christmas, to reclaim it for what it was intended. And the only way to really do that, as I see it, is to reclaim Jesus. You know, ju not just in a, a schmarmy, nostalgic, holiday, crash scene way, but in a historic and realistic sense. And I, I want to reclaim Jesus for who he really was, and I want to do so in, in some accurate yet unexpected and maybe even uncomfortable ways. I mean, remember, following Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, Herod the Great, who was ruler of Israel at the time, heard rumors of a child born to be king. And in a paranoid effort to ensure his own power and royal succession, Herod decided he was going to kill all the male children in the region of Bethlehem two years old and under. And just so you know, this was not unusual behavior for Herod. Ancient historians, both Jewish and Roman, record how during his 30-plus year reign in power, uh, he put to death hundreds and hundreds of people. Uh, men, women, children, family, friends, enemies, religious, irreligious, soldiers, civilians. It didn't matter if Herod felt threatened by somebody. He took action. I mean, he had one of his own wives and two of his sons strangled because he didn't trust them. Caesar Augustus joked in Rome one time he'd rather be Herod's pig than his own son. So suffice it to say, Herod was notoriously brutal, and his order to kill young children was not out of character at all, and it became known as the Massacre of the Innocents. But as he plotted uh, this genocide, Matthew reports that an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child Jesus and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So Joseph got up, he took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And then Matthew goes on and says that Herod gave the order to kill all the boys in Bethlehem in its vicinity who were two years old and under. Now, many of us are familiar with this account of Jesus' early life, but as we read it again, as we hear it again, let's think for a second, 
you know, about what it actually tells us about Jesus. It tells us that he came from a family struggling under the yoke of a violent, oppressive regime. And it tells us how under the threat of death, he and his family fled their homeland, escaping to a foreign country in an effort to find safety and refuge. Meaning what? Meaning that essentially, as a young child, Jesus was a refugee. Uh, Last year, Time Magazine pointed this out in an article titled, The Original Christmas Story is Really About Refugees. The author of the article, Dr. Serena Jones, says, knowing how that's true, she said it's really hard not to think about the millions of people from that same region of the world who are seeking refuge from terror and oppression now, 2,000 years later. So I got to tell you something. This is full disclosure on this. Up until recently, I never thought of Jesus this way. I never thought of him this way. I mean, I've known the story, I've read the story, I've studied the text, but I've never really put these two things together. And yet the very definition of a refugee is a person who's forced to flee their country in order to escape war, persecution, and or the threat of death. And therefore, in the truest sense, Jesus was a refugee, at least early on in his life. And I realize that Uh, That's something easily overlooked and and maybe even for some considered irrelevant to the bigger picture. Uh, But as I thought more about it, I couldn't help but wonder, you know, how Jesus and his family were treated in Egypt, you know? Um, Were they welcomed? Did they have any connections? Did anyone offer to help them with food, shelter, clothing, a job? Or did they just struggle, you know, struggle to survive day to day as strangers, foreigners, outcasts, slumming it in some isolated camp with others who fled for their lives as well. We don't know. But I tell you this, the reality of Jesus' experience has caused me to think uh, more carefully about and, and to sympathize more readily with the plight of refugees in general. I mean, it just dawned on me that recently that Moses was a refugee, right? He fled Egypt under the threat of death, and he went to a foreign land too. You know what? And so was Joseph. So was Ruth. So was Nehemiah. I mean, it's a bit embarrassing to admit, but um, I've just started to recognize how this theme of strangers in foreign lands permeates the Scripture. And if and when we begin to explore the topic more carefully... Uh, what we begin to see and what we begin to understand is how God feels about refugees. The truth is, Scripture's quite clear on it. We're told in no uncertain terms that God loves the outcast, the foreigner, the stranger, the refugee, who shows up in, around, or near his people. For example, in the Old Testament, uh, Moses declared to the Israelites how God, he says, God, your God is affectionate. He's affectionate and he's loving And Moses says, the Lord your God is the one true God. He is mighty. He is awesome, who shows no partiality. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. God loves the foreigner residing among you, Moses says. And just so you know, the Hebrew term that's used here can be translated any number of ways. It can be translated foreigner, sojourner, stranger, immigrant, alien, or refugee. And it appears 92 times in the Old Testament, most often in the context of God expressing his love for that individual and how he he wants his people to treat them. In fact, in this very same text, Moses says, you know, God who shows no partiality loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing 
And then he says, and you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Elsewhere, God explains how he wants his people to love these strangers, these foreigners, and refugees. How exactly? He says, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. Love them as yourself. When you hear their cry for help, we're instructed to do whatever the foreigner asks of you. At one point, God warns his people that he will be quick to judge those who oppress the poor and needy and who deprive the foreigners among you of justice. So trust me when I tell you, or you can do the research yourself, these kinds of statements are found throughout the Old Testament. It's fascinating. Over in the New Testament, well, we in the church as Christians, as followers of Jesus, are repeatedly called to, uh, as the Apostle Paul put it, practice hospitality. Hospitality. And and the Greek term for hospitality, just so you know, isn't just about having someone over for a light dinner. It means much more than that. It comes, actually, the Greek term comes from two Greek terms, philo, xenia. Philo, meaning love, uh, of a friendship type of love and commitment, and then xenon, stranger, someone who's different, who thinks differently, looks differently, believes differently. It's where we get our current, our, our contemporary word, xenophobia, the fear of those who are different. But in this case, uh, philoxenia means, literally means, to love and make friends of strangers, to love the stranger, the one who is different. Maybe I'm wrong on this, but I'm guessing most of us in this room are quite aware of how Jesus told his followers that when you see a stranger, a foreigner, an alien, a refugee, who is hungry, thirsty, in need of clothes or sick, or you know, needs some kind of help, do what you can do to help them. He said, for I was a stranger, and you helped me. And the disciples, when they said that, the disciples said, well, Lord, when did we help you? He said, well, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these strangers, these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And knowing that Jesus himself was at one time a stranger in a foreign land, forced to flee his home, man, oh, man, that makes his statement here all the more significant and impactful. Here's my, here's my Ray K. summary. Jesus says to his followers, when you love, when you help, when you serve, when you give to refugees, it's like you're loving, helping, serving, and giving to me. For I too was once a stranger, a refugee in a foreign land. Consider also the fact that one of Jesus' most famous parables, the parable of the Good Samaritan, is all about showing compassion and mercy to someone. To who? A stranger. Not just a stranger, but to someone who was considered, you might even consider your enemy, someone who thinks differently than you, believes differently from you. Jesus says, show them mercy. At one point, he just came right out and he told his friends, he said, look, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Give to everyone who asks you. Do to others as you would have them do to you. So there's no missing it if you're willing to open your eyes and look. From start to finish, the biblical narrative communicates God's heart for the outsider, for the forgotten, the marginalized, the stranger, the foreigner, the refugee. He loves them, he cares about them, 
and he calls us his people to love them as much as we love ourselves. And I don't know, I, I don't think it's too hard to recognize how the, how the implication of this is just huge when set against the current refugee crisis uh, in our world. Uh, this fall, as some of you may remember, this fall we did a series of studies in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. And as I was reading for, for that study, I was reading uh, N.T. Wright's commentary on the epistle. N.T. Wright is a well-known author and very well-respected theologian. And in his commentary, I came across his assessment of this uh, current crisis. It actually surprised me that he was writing about this in the book. But he says that he puts it this way. He says, One of the greatest worldwide problems of our time is the plight of refugees. People in the West, which is us, sometimes try to pretend that the world is now a civilized place where most people can go about their business in peace and at least relative prosperity. But the evidence suggests that is over-optimistic. More people than ever, it seems, are displaced from homes and homelands and find themselves wandering the world in search of somewhere to live. The countries where they arrive are often overwhelmed and find their resources and their patience are under strain, despite feeling sympathetic to people who have often suffered a great deal. What refugees want above all, assuming they can never return to their original homes, is to be accepted into a new community where they can rebuild their lives and their families. And then he goes on to talk about the unique opportunity that, that, that this affords the Christian church in the West to help make a difference in people's lives in the name of Jesus. And so, you know, in light of all of this, uh, here's my question, and I've been wrestling with this for months. You know, what is our response to the refugee crisis in the world? What is our response to it? I mean, if we're in agreement that God loves the refugee, the stranger, and he calls us to love and care for them as well, I mean, if that's the reality, then that reality carries responsibilities, doesn't it? And let's be honest about it. I mean, we hear about this crisis in the news every day. And unless you turn off all of your social media, your TVs, your radios, cancel your Twitter accounts, and never read a newspaper or magazine again, there's no escaping it. The crisis is real. We all know it. Everybody's talking about it. And the number of men, women, and children from a variety of nations who under the threat of persecution, violence, and death have been forced to flee their homelands is massive. It's massive and it's growing. And I, I don't know about you, but for me, you know, sometimes the bigger a problem is, the more paralyzed I, I feel in terms, of, in terms of how to help solve it. Do you know what I'm saying? On really what to do. I mean, where do you, where do you even begin to try and help such a, a crisis of this magnitude? How do you make a difference? Where might we begin to make a difference? And it seems to me it starts with some simple steps. And for what it's worth, here's how I see it. Because God loves the refugee and calls us to love them as well, first things first, we need to get, uh, we need to get informed and seek to accurately understand the crisis and what's actually happening. Um, there's a lot of misinformation. So he here are some of the realities. First of all, the global reality. According to experts, we are now facing the worst refugee crisis since World War II. 
According to the Office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, the number of displaced people, that word simply means people who have left their homes, some of them remain in their country, some have fleed, you know, have taken off from their country, left their country. The dis- number for displaced people in the world right now is the highest ever recorded at 65.3 million people. Half of that number are children under the age of 18. And realize with these statistics, uh, these statistics, these statistics are, are the most recent, but they're constantly changing because the crisis uh, is changing and growing. But these are current statistics. They tell us that right now, 21.3 million people around the world have, been, uh, have, have gained official refugee status. 53% of that number are fleeing basically three countries, Somalia, Afghanistan, and Syria. Now, there are other countries where people are fleeing, like Christians fleeing Bhutan, um, where they're persecuted. Uh, But these are the three big ones. You know, people are pouring out of these nations uh, under threat of death. The Syrian refugee crisis is the worst of all, with a number that has now ballooned to nearly 5 million people. 5 million people. You know, to a certain degree, these kinds of numbers are hard to grasp, at least for me, it's hard to wrap my brain around them but essentially it equates to 33,972 people being forced to leave their homes every day. 33,972 people. You know what that's like? That's like the entire population of Glen Ellen being forced to up and flee their home and run to a foreign land every day. In fact, it's more. It's actually Glen Ellen and a slice of Lombard. That's a lot of people. And yet that's what's happening. News on the ground around the world is staggering. Many refugees are starving to death. They're diseased. They're dying. They're drowning. They're shelterless. They're afraid. And they are without hope. And these people come from all walks of life. Some are from the Middle East region of our world. Some are from East Asia. Some are from Africa. Some are educated. Some are not educated. Some are Muslim. Some are Christians. Some have other religious affiliations or some have none at all. And unfortunately, many in the West are kind of reacting to the current situation with an attitude driven by lack of information, fear, and a desire to prioritize self-protection. And I get that. I mean, I understand that. I mean, there's no, there's no doubt about it. This refugee crisis, concurrent with the rise of global terrorism, is creating unprecedented challenges, you know, challenges that carry potential threats to our own safety and security which is why getting accurate information and understanding of how the global refugee crisis impacts us here in America is important. So here's the, here's the regional reality. In fiscal year 2016, which for, for us in America ended on September 30th, according to the U.S. State Department's Refugee Processing Center, over the past 12 months, 84,995 refugees were allowed to enter our country from various areas of the world. Just under 85,000. Of that 85,000, 38,901 of those folks came from Muslim backgrounds. And then of that 85,995 people, 37,520 came from Christian backgrounds, with the rest considered unaffiliated. And here's the deal. I, I think it's critical we dispel the myth that these accepted refugees Men, women, and children are unvetted. It's just not true. All of these individuals and families, no matter who they are, where they've come from, 
or what they believe, all these individuals and families undergo a multi-layered screening and vetting process uh, before ever being allowed into the country. And it's a process that takes, at the very least, 18 months, sometimes more. It's a process more thorough and rigorous than that to which any other category of immigrant or visitor to the United States is subject to. And then, of the number of refugees who are accepted by the U.S., um, approximately 2,000 of them are brought to Illinois every year. The majority for us in Illinois being women and children. Which then brings us to the local reality. Many refugees and their families are being resettled here in DuPage County. Men, women, children who were forced to flee their homes under the threat of persecution, violence, death, many of them having experienced just incredible trauma and loss from among the way and in the process, they are our neighbors living around us, trying to establish a new life for themselves and their families. In fact, we have refugee families not just in our surrounding community, but here in our own church. And with that being true, for me, the scriptures come to life. The Lord your God shows no partiality. He loves the refugee residing among you, and you are to love those who are refugees. Do not mistreat them. Love them as you love yourself. For I was a stranger. Whatever you did for one of these, the least of, the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Love your enemies. Pray for those who are strangers among you. Do not do to others as you would have them do to you. I mean, you talk about theological and spiritual relevance. It doesn't get any more practical than that. But here's the thing. Being well-educated, you know, is all well and good, but let's face it, just knowing about a problem doesn't necessarily help solve it. What we need, we, well, we need not to only be well-informed, but we need to be uh, getting ourselves involved. We need to get involved spiritually. You know, we're called to pray. Um, for those around us, we're called to pray and, and ask God to comfort those he loves, these strangers, these, these, these refugee men, women, and children who've been forced to flee their homes, who have suffered some unimaginable things along the way and now seek places of safety and refuge. We need to pray for them. We need to pray for policymakers around the globe as well as here in the United States and ask God to grant leaders wisdom, compassion, and discernment as they seek to engage what is one of the most complex and difficult issues to face the world in decades. And then we need to pray for God to guide us, his people, the church, and to help us understand and recognize his impartiality and his love for, for the stranger, the foreigner, the refugee, and ask him to give us the courage to love them and to get actively involved on their behalf through serving with our time and our energy, giving of our finances to organizations that are doing what many are unwilling to do. You know, as Dave mentioned earlier, almost every year as a church we promote a Christmas generosity initiative, which is above and beyond our normal giving. We've done a lot of different things over the past several years, but in light of the current world situation, and even more so in light of God's heart for the refugee and his call for us to love them as much as we love ourselves, and we love ourselves a lot, we're committing this season's generosity initiative to go in support of work being done on behalf of refugees worldwide. 
first locally, as we mentioned, through the Renew Project, which is located right downtown Glen Ellen. It's, a, it's an amazing organization. It's a nonprofit organization operating a retail business, providing training, employment, and community uh, to refugee women resettled in DuPage. Not only do we want, we want to help them financially, but we hope to offer some hands-on opportunities for our for volunteers from the church to get involved and to serve Renew. And actually, some, some of our women have already started doing that. The director of Renew, she, a brilliant woman's going to be with us in two weeks. You're really going to like her. It's a fabulous organization. Regionally, we want to help World Relief. Now, many of you are familiar with World Relief. It's a Christian organization that works with local churches, helping refugees resettle and become healthy, productive members of our society. Um, we have a book available at the Resource Center uh, titled Seeking Refuge. It's written by two of the leaders from World Relief. One of those leaders, he's, uh, his name is Matthew Sorens. He's um, the director of local church mobilization. Uh, Matthew is going to be with us next week. He's going to bring a friend from World Relief who is a refugee. We're going to hear some of their story. So that's available for you if you're interested. And then we want to we we work globally with Preemptive Love Coalition. As, as Dave mentioned, Jeremy Courtney was here. We're uh, uh, in all of the work that he and his people are doing in Iraq to help the refugees fleeing Syria, which has created, by the way, one of the greatest humanitarian disasters of our time. And we're going to talk a little bit more about these organizations over the next couple weeks of December. But understand, you know, please understand, all of this, all of this circles back to the fact that God is mighty and awesome. He is affectionate and loving. He shows no partiality. He loves all people, including refugees. He loved the world so much, he gave us Jesus, deity in the flesh, come to offer grace and forgiveness to humanity. And so this year, in the midst of all the Christmas celebration, let's reclaim Jesus. And let's be careful not to, to miss the astounding truth that ultimately it's through him and the sacrifice of God the refugee that we are rescued and given life everlasting. Let's pray. Our Father, in the, in the comfort of our lives, um, it's easy for us to think that everybody has it like we have it, that everyone's free to think, to believe, to say what they, th what they feel, to express themselves, but that's just not true in so many places of the world. Even among people who we don't fully understand, maybe disagree with their beliefs, um, such evil has caused pain uh, in the lives of, of these men and women and children that they've had to flee their own countries with nothing except their lives. I pray that we wouldn't, we wouldn't overlook them this, this Christmas season, we would remember. And even as we recognize that the, the crisis uh, touches, touches us right here in DuPage County, may we, um, may we seek ways in which we might help uh, to love the stranger, the foreigner, the refugee among us. 
for we are saved by the refugee Jesus. We love him, and we want to speak out and serve others in his name. Give us the strength and the courage to do that, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together, shall we? thank you all for being here with us this morning and um, I just want to be clear on one thing you know we're we're not setting out to help strangers refugees um, through generosity and through service and we're not doing this to earn the love of God we're told that God is affectionate and loving already but he's also uh, impartial he loves all people no matter where they're from no matter what they look like no matter what they've gone through he loves all people. He loved the world enough to give us his son, Jesus. And so we're not, we're not doing these things to try to earn God's love, to try to prove ourselves worthy of heaven. No, no, no. As Christians, this is the outpouring of love, the kind of love that we've received in, in and through Jesus. The forgiveness, the grace, the goodness of God is pouring out of us onto the stranger, onto those in need. And I hope you understand that. Because experiencing faith forgiveness in Jesus, that's what it means to be a Christian. And we're going to talk more about that in the next couple weeks as we head into Christmas, uh, Christmas Eve. But I'm glad you were here this morning, and I hope you can go back uh, next week as we continue. Also, make sure you stop at the Resource Center. There's a lot of very, uh, very nice things there uh, made by some of these uh, refugee women and, and, and other people around the world that uh, are part of our ministry and partnership, okay? Before we leave, I want to I want to just talk to you quickly about one other thing. I want to invite uh, Chuck Howard and Patty Howard to come up on the stage with me. As many of you know, Chuck and Patty, uh, Chuck uh, has been on our staff. He's an administrative pastor. He's been uh, serving with me for uh, 16 years, going on 17. You deserve a medal, my friend. And uh, <laughs> and. Uh, Chuck is finishing up in the next couple of weeks, and then he, he's going to retire, right? Yeah, I like the way Scott puts it, be redeployed. Be redeployed, yeah. 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 Well, what, what are some of your plans, Chuck? Well, you know, we're, we're not exactly sure, um, but uh, we're going to be a part of Parkview still. Uh, just may not be here quite as much during the week. <laughs> and uh, we're going to have some more time to be with our, our family and... Uh, we're going to see where God leads us there. So uh, we're looking forward to it. It's been uh, great working with you and the rest of the staff. And uh, I'm going to miss the, uh, the staff meetings, you know, enjoyable time. But I'm also not going to miss the staff meetings. So I don't know. It's kind of a mixed thing. You know? I hear what you're saying, man. I get, I get what you're saying. And you're going to have so much more time with family. Tell us how many grandchildren now? Uh, we have 11 grandchildren from 2 to 15. Wow. They're going to keep you busy. So we just, I just wanted to have you up and publicly say thank you for 16, 17 great years. It's been fun. Um, I'm going to miss you, but you'll be around. Yes, and I've, again, just enjoyed being a part of this and just honored that God let us be here at Parkview. Uh, God's doing some amazing things, and uh, we look forward to seeing what he's going to continue to do. I asked Scott Zimbo, our chairman of our elders, to come and pray for Chuck, because I wasn't sure I was going to be able to do it. We didn't know how we were going to respond to this, but... I'm, I'm okay at the moment, but Scott, pray for us anyway, will you? Let's, let's pray. As we celebrate the redeployment of Chuck's gifts and talents, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the years of service Chuck has devoted to you and the Parkview family. We 
Thank you for his compassion, his diligence, his sacrifice, and his willingness to serve you completely. We also thank you for the leadership and friendship that Chuck has shared with so many of us. While Chuck will be missed on staff, we know you have wonderful plans for him. So we ask you now your blessing on Chuck and Patty in this new season of their lives. Pro provide them with the vision and energy to serve you well in the days ahead. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. I want to thank you all for being with us again. Come back next week, and uh, I look forward to being with you. So go in peace.